This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. We'll open your Bibles this morning to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, 2 Corinthians 8, and if you would open your By His Grace, For His Glory booklet to page 25, and you'll see the notes there, a place where you can take notes today and uh, for four subsequent weeks after this. So remember to bring your your booklet week by week, and you can can take notes. And what we're going to do over these five weeks is we're going to, to go through 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. It's just one of the greatest passages in the Word of God about the Gospel, about what God has given to us, about what giving is all about, what that means for, for us. And this morning, we're going to talk about excelling in this act of grace. And to do that, we're going to look at the first seven verses of chapter 8. So take your copy of God's Word and follow along with me. 2 Corinthians 8, and let's look at verses 1 through 7. Paul says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace that God has given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave, according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I once saw an interview with Hall of Fame quarterback Bart Starr of the Green Bay Packers. And he was talking about his legendary coach, Vince Lombardi. And Bart Starr said that Lombardi when he addressed the team, he would often say, gentlemen, we are going to chase perfection and we will not catch it. But in the process of chasing perfection, we will catch excellence. And that team was known for excellence. They became a football dynasty in the 1960s. What we see Paul doing here in this text is exhorting the Corinthian church to excellence in the area of generosity. If you look at at verse 7, which we just read, he, he tells them here, just as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. The Lord Jesus considered the issue of of how we handle resources so important that he devoted a a large chunk, about 15% 
of, of the teaching of Jesus is, is really devoted to this whole issue of how we handle uh, money and the whole issue of, of, of giving. Why was that? Why, why did Jesus devote that much of his teaching to this subject? Is it because God needs money? Of course not. doesn't need anything. It, it's because Jesus knew that somehow our spiritual lives are intrinsically linked with how we handle the material things of life. And, and Paul's going to talk about that in these two chapters. He's going to sort of, of, of unpack that. And before we begin to dig in and, and kind of go through this verse by verse, I want us to, to really see the, the context of what he's talking about. What, what is the setting for 2 Corinthians 8 and, 8 and 9? What's, what's going on here? What leads Paul to write this? Well, basically what's happening, Paul is writing to the church at Corinth. He is preparing to send his colleague Titus with this letter that he's going to deliver to the church there. And later on, Paul is planning on coming himself. And when he comes, he wants to receive a collection that the church is taking for the, another church, for the church in Jerusalem. Uh, the church in Jerusalem was, was suffering, and so the church at Corinth and several other churches were, were taking up a collection for the relief of their brothers and sisters in Christ. And this was extremely important to the Apostle Paul. This is not the only place. When you read Paul's letters, you see him talking about this collection, this offering, and in other letters as, as well. It was very, very important to him. Well, why? Why was this offering so important? There were three reasons. First, it was going to be such a help to the Jerusalem church. The believers in Jerusalem had been devastated by a couple of tragedies. They'd been devastated by famine. They had been devastated by uh, persecution. And so in, in love, uh, Paul wanted Christians to, to join together and to help them. But there were a couple of other reasons as well. One is that Paul knew that this was going to bless the givers he knew that the people who gave to this offering were themselves going to be blessed. Acts 20 and verse 35 says, Remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. Jesus knew that there are spiritual riches that we can really never experience until we understand what it means to, to give generously and joyfully. It, there are blessings that we'll never receive until we, until we understand the blessing of, of, of giving. And so uh, Paul knew that this was important because it was going to bless the givers. And then thirdly, it was important because it would demonstrate Christian unity. The church at Corinth and the other churches that were taking up this special offering were predominantly composed of, of Gentiles. The church in Jerusalem was composed of, of Jewish Christians. And of course, there had been uh, in, in that world in the first century tremendous animosity between those two Two groups, and, and, and even within the church, when you read Acts and some of the letters of Paul, you see that between 
Christians of Jewish background and Christians of Gentile background, there had been some misunderstanding and some, some conflict. And Paul knew that for these predominantly Gentile churches to, to, uh, to make this special offering to relieve the burden of these Jewish Christians in Jerusalem would be just a, a huge display of, of love and would contribute to, to unity. N.T. Wright, in, in commenting on, on this, says, Paul's, Paul is desperately concerned for the unity of the whole Christian family. And he has glimpsed, as part of his missionary vocation, the possibility of doing something so striking, so remarkable, so practical, that it will establish a benchmark for generations to come. When I read that quote, I thought about the project that we're engaged in as a church family. Because what we're doing is, is first of all, going to be striking. And it's going to be remarkable. When, when this is, is done, the, the change to our, our church facility is, is going to, it's going to blow our minds. I mean, we're going to look back and think, how did, we, how did we go so long without doing this? Because the change is going to be so, so wonderful and, and remarkable and, and striking. This will not be just a, a minor thing. This, would, this will be a, a, a big thing. It will be a, a, a striking thing, an eye-popping thing when, when it happens. But, but more importantly, it is a practical thing for our church. It is going to help us in fulfilling our mission. When we first began to, to pray about this, our, our renovation committee, we came up with a, with a mission statement for what this whole thing was all about. And our, our mission statement was to, uh, to, to renovate and make improvements to our church facilities for the purpose of reaching people for Christ and discipling them in their Christian walk. This is about our mission. This is about, instead of our facilities being something that we have to overcome to fulfill our mission, this is about our facilities becoming our allies in fulfilling our mission. It's going to be practical in helping us fulfill what God has called us to do in advancing the gospel. And, um, and then also, our project is going to be something that is going to be a benchmark for generations to come. What is happening here is going to really set the pace for our church and lay the groundwork for the advance of the gospel in our church for decades, for generations to come. And God has called us as a church family for such a time as this to rise up and to join together in unity uh, to do this and to be a part of something that is so much bigger than, than us. Mike said it on the, the video that, that when we join together and we have a, we have a shared vision that we're moving toward. There's something so inspiring about that and so unifying about that when we're engaged in something that's so much bigger than us. 
I was reading a book recently, and it was by a Navy SEAL, and it was one of the guys that was involved in the, the Bin Laden raid. And he goes by the pen name of Mark Owen. That can't, can't really give his, his name. But this guy was talking about the, the culture of the, of the Navy SEALs. And when I read this sentence, chills went down my spine. He said, we're not superheroes, but we all share a common bond in serving something greater than ourselves. Don't you love that? It's a brotherhood that binds us together. A common bond in serving something greater than ourselves. I love that because we live in a culture that is so self-centered and so narcissistic. A culture where everybody is, is looking out for themselves. You know, it, it, it's, it's all about me. And for, for us to come together and say, you know, it's all about Christ. It's all about the advance of the gospel. We're joining together in something that is so much greater, so much higher, so much bigger than, than living life for ourselves. That's just, that's just inspiring. And so Paul knew that as people joined together to, to give, that it was just going to be such a, a great demonstration of unity. Well, let's begin to kind of dig in. Let's, let's go, I want us to go through these first verses and just see the principles that flow through them. And basically, what he's doing is giving us four characteristics of excellent giving. Remember, he says in verse 7, I want you to excel in this. He tells them, as a church family, you excel in many things, in speech and knowledge and all kinds of things, but I want you to excel in this, in this act of grace. Okay? So he gives us four characteristics of excellent giving. And the first one is this. It flows from grace. Look at what he says in verse 1. He says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. The churches of Macedonia would have included the Philippians, the Thessalonians, the Bereans. They were churches that were clustered in the area that would now be the northern part of Greece. And Paul says here that, that grace characterizes these churches. Grace is really a pervasive theme in these two chapters. The, the Greek word is a beautiful word, charis, and it's used in various forms ten times. It just weaves its way through this section of 2 Corinthians. And Paul says here that, that grace has been given to these churches. Grace, by definition, is something that is given. It is undeserved, unmerited love and favor, and mercy. And of course, the ultimate example of grace is, is Christ. What, 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 Christ. what God has done for us in, in Christ. Look at verse 9. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you, by His poverty, might become rich. God became a human being. He left the glory and splendor of heaven to become a human being, born in the lowliest 
of circumstances. Jesus' crib was a feeding trough for animals. His nursery was an, was an animal pen. He was born under the lowliest circumstances, and he died a death, crucifixion, that was reserved for the lowest of the low. And he did it all so that we could have spiritual riches, so that we could be forgiven of our sins, so that we would not have to experience the the, the righteous wrath of God poured out because of our sins, because Jesus took that wrath in our place on the cross. It was so that we could be not only forgiven of our sins, but ex- completely accepted by God as His children, adopted as His sons and daughters. Those are our spiritual riches that Jesus made possible. And when we experience that, when we really understand that, it, it changes us. It changes us. Having received from God... We want to give to others. Having been accepted by God, we can accept one another. That's grace. Everything that we're talking about flows from grace. The second principle that we see here about excellent giving is that it's filled with joy. Look at what he says in verse 2. He says, For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. <laughs> is this verse not amazing? I mean, look at, look at the phrases that he puts together. <laughs> These are things that don't normally go together. A severe test of affliction and abundance of joy. Do those things usually go together? Extreme poverty and wealth of generosity. Those things don't go together unless God has moved into a situation. Unless God has moved into lives and totally reoriented our perspective. I mean, how can, I mean, think about it. How can abundance of joy spring from the soil of a severe test of affliction? How can a wealth of generosity spring up from the soil of extreme poverty? How does that happen? It can happen in only one way. By the power and grace of God. When God shows up in lives. Now, Jesus describes something like this in a little mini parable that he told in Matthew 13. Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now, the key to understanding this little parable is the word joy. Joy. This man joyfully 
liquidates. <laughs> he joyfully gets rid of everything else because he's found a treasure of such incomparable worth. And of course, the treasure is Jesus himself. You know, in our culture, especially in America, we've been blessed with so much. And, 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 and the danger is that we, we can get so caught up in the gifts that God has given to us that we forget that the ultimate gift is God himself. The ultimate gift is the giver. It's God. Jonathan Edwards understood that. Edwards once said, The enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows, but God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams. God is the ocean. Well, it's interesting that Edwards, Edwards points to the gifts that are, really are the most precious things in life. I mean, the most precious gifts that God gives us are the, you know, the gift of family and friends, but, but, but even those gifts, as precious as they are, you know, don't compare to the ultimate gift, which is, is God himself. Well, if that's true, then how much more is it true that money and material things are, are no substitute for the giver? It's God. And, and, and God is the only one who can truly satisfy our souls. And, and what's happening here in these Macedonian churches, the reason that these impoverished people were so happy. They were not only impoverished, but they were persecuted. The reason why these impoverished, persecuted people were so happy and the reason that they could, could give so generously and so joyfully is because they were so caught up in God. They were so satisfied in God that, you know, to part with material things, that was something that they could do with joy and really with abandon. It's filled with joy. There's a, there's a third characteristic that he gives us here of excellent giving, and we see it in verses 3 and 4, and that is that it is sacrificial. And notice what Paul uh, says in verses 3 and 4. He says, For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Now again, this is just radically counterintuitive because you would expect that, that people who were so poor would, would plead poverty as an excuse for not giving, right? But instead, Paul says they were pleading something else. They were pleading with him for the privilege of giving. And Paul would actually try to put the brakes on them because he knew their situation and he knew, he knew they were so poor and everything. Paul would actually, he tried to put the, the, the brakes on their giving. And what did they do? They responded by pleading, by begging him to be able to participate in this offering. 
and participate they did. They did. And verse 3 tells us here that they, they gave according to their means and they gave beyond their means. Jesus tells us about someone like this. We, we read about it in the 21st chapter of Luke. The Bible says that Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. It was, it was so sacrificial. In the Old Testament, Second Samuel, there's a, there's a great story about King David. David wanted to, he wanted to buy a piece of property and he wanted to build this altar to the Lord on this property. And so he goes to this, this guy, Arana, and he's going to buy this piece of property from, from Arana. And Arana responds to King David by saying, look, I'll just give it to you. I'll, I'll, I'll give you not only the land, I'll give you all the materials to, to build the altar on the land. And how did David respond to Arana? 2 Samuel 24 says, But the king said to Arana, No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. What was David saying there? David was saying, my God, who has done so much for me, is worthy of a sacrifice on my part. Excellent giving is, is sacrificial. That means different things for, for different people. For the widow in Luke 21, when she gave two copper coins, she was giving all that she had to, to, to live on. What made it special was not the amount that she gave, it was the sacrifice that she made. In terms of the sheer amount that was given by the churches of Macedonia, it, it couldn't compare to what could be given by churches like Corinth, which was a wealthier congregation. But what made their giving, the Macedonians' giving, so special was because of the sacrifice that was involved in it. He says in verse 3, they gave according to their means and they gave beyond their means as, as a sacrifice. Our God, is, our God is worthy of that. Steve said it on the video. You know, it, it's not really about just kind of giving sort of out of the, the excess and, and something that, you know, we're not even going to miss. It's not even really going to impact our lifestyle. Our God who has been so good to us, he is worthy. He is worthy of a sacrifice on our part. Excellent giving is sacrificial. And then we see that it's also an expression of worship. Look at verse 5. Verse 5. It's an expression of worship. What, is, <clears throat> what does Paul say here? He says, And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord 
and then by the will of God to us. I saw something so cool <clears throat> a couple of weeks ago. It was, it was our original church covenant from 1827. I had to squint to, to read the, the, the beautiful kind of, kind of flowing cursive from the early 19th century. But as I read this document, this is, the, this is the document that the charter members, the original members of our church, affixed their name to when they came together and when our church was started. And along about midway in that covenant, they, they made this statement. They said, <clears throat> We do give ourselves first to the Lord and then to one another. They got it straight from 2 Corinthians 8, 5. What, what were they saying? The group of people that started our church, you know, 33 people got together in the beginning, and they were saying, our lives are going to be about something higher than self. We're going we're to give ourselves first to the Lord who gave himself for us, and then we're going to give ourselves to the church that Jesus died for. Our lives are not about us anymore. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 15 says this, And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. You see, when God invades our lives, he changes our perspective. He moves us from being focused inward to being focused outward, to, to looking up to Him in faith and out to others in love. And we are, we are, we're placing as an act of worship. Paul says in Romans 12, we're to place ourselves as an act of worship before the Lord. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies. And the word bodies there refers to the totality of who we are, everything that we are, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. When we give ourselves to the Lord, when we give of our, of fi our finances, <laughs> What we're saying, every time that we do that, and I hope you understand this, you know, every time that you give, every time that you give week by week to support our church budget, which is just so important, um, and if all of us just joined together and did a, did a little bit better on that, there would be no problem with meeting our, our church budget. That would be infinitely doable. We had to raise the, our church budget. Okay, but... but Every time that we give, Sunday by Sunday, and when we give to, to special offerings, like by His grace and for His glory, every time that we do that, it's an act of worship. And we're saying to the Lord, Lord, I love you. I love you. 
Scott Hathaman says this, giving is to be the reflex of our own joy in the grandeur of God's gift to us in Christ. When we really get that, when we experience that grace, then the response is that we, we want to leverage every bit of our lives, every aspect of our lives, our time, our talents, and our treasures. Leverage it all. Place it all on the altar for the advance of the gospel, for the glory of our King who loved us and gave himself for us. That's what it's all about. Let's pray together. Lord, we, we want our lives to be truly yours. Father, we pray that we would withhold nothing from you, that we would present the totality of, of who we are, every aspect of our lives, on the altar before you. Lord, we, we know that there could be no more strategic or important use of our time, of our talents, or of our treasures than to see people come to know you. These earthly lives that we're living, they're so brief, but eternity is forever. Father, we pray that you would give us an eternal perspective. Help us to understand that that, that it's only... We only get one life and it's going to soon be passed. And it's only what is done for Christ that will last, that will go on and on and on. Father, we pray that you would give us that kind of kingdom perspective to lay up treasures in heaven and make our lives count for something beyond ourselves, for things that are going to last forever. Lord, we look around our community, so many people that need the gospel. And Father, we, we know that, that what we're doing here is going to help us to reach men and women and boys and girls for Christ. And that's what it's all about. Lord, help us to join together in this, to pray, to seek your heart, Lord, and to, to give as an expression of, of worship. Father, we thank you for the ultimate gift of Jesus for us. Lord, I pray for anyone here today that has not received the gift of Christ. Lord, that you would open their hearts to trust in Jesus. So we just continue to pray. If you're here today and you're not certain that you know Christ as your Savior, you know the work has been done it's done. Everything necessary for our salvation is finished. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He rose from the dead. And because of that, if we'll turn to Him and trust in His finished work and what He's accomplished, there is new life. There is eternal life. Christ invites you into that relationship. 
If you're here today and you're, you're trusting in Christ or you want to know more about that, in just a moment we're going to stand and sing. I'm going to be right here at the front. And as others stand, I want to invite you to come to say, I've decided I want to give my life to Christ, the one who gave himself for me. Or maybe you're here today and, and you would say, I want to be a part of this family of brothers and sisters. I want to, I want to stand with this church family. And, and lock arms with people here as we seek to advance the gospel together, then we want to invite you to come. So, Father, we give you now this time of, of decision. We pray that you would work in hearts and lives right now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12: To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father, and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you too. Come to one of our services. We worship at 8.30 and 11 on Sunday mornings. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I could help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.